I would like to welcome Dr. Bernie Hogan, research fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute and a sociologist. Dr. Hogan will talk with us about the social network Facebook. So your work is in personal relationships on and offline. Could you introduce this topic? What is the interest of sociology exactly? What are the main issues? Well, I'm a sociologist by uh, title and primarily a social network analyst by training, which is to say I look at the specific relationships between individuals. So my relationship to another person and their relationship to another person, rather than broad forms of relationships such as uh, social movements or social groups. The idea here is that we can get a good sense of how people relate to each other by focusing on the patterns of specific relationships that people engage in rather than uh, larger cultural forms that serve as the backdrop for these relationships. In the media world where this uh, comes into play, first it's obvious with social networking sites that they try very hard to make the idea of a social network or having a social network at the forefront of how you relate to other people. So it's a, it's a lovely connectionship or a lovely relationship between the sort of work that I do and the sort of work that we do and the architecture of Facebook. But I also look at these relationships offline as a way of informing what happens online. So instead of considering the online world as this virtual space where we can be whoever we want, rather look at who we interact with and who we think is important to us and how those relationships are manifested both in personal interactions, say going out to a pub or meeting somebody playing sports or going for a picnic, and how those relationships are manifested in terms of email addresses and relating to each other online. Why are you interested specifically in Facebook? My interest in Facebook comes through two specific issues. The first issue is the relationship between the people that we are associated with or who we want to be associated with in everyday life, which we call the personal network, the people that we feel close to, those that we turn to for uh, support and advice and affection, those people that help us get through our day-to-day -day lives, and how that network of individuals matches up with the network of individuals that we have on Facebook. Are they the same people? Uh, is one a subset of the other? And when you have on Facebook so many people that you've met all vying for your attention through their friend feeds or through inviting you to uh, various events or groups, how that plays against the notion that we have an, a series of offline friends. So with Facebook, does that allow us to broaden our uh, personal network and make it wider? Or does it encroach on our personal network and make it more difficult for us to maintain ties easily? So that's one question. The second thing I'm looking at is how we regulate boundaries and I guess to a lesser extent privacy, but primarily on boundaries. And that is in offline interactions we have contexts. So uh, my work is one context, going to a concert might be a context, uh, playing football might be a context, and my interactions can differ depending on which context I'm in and which people I'm around. Whereas on Facebook, all of my friends and my workmates and my colleagues are all part of the same network and they're all privy to a lot of the same information. And so how do people regulate what information they give to who on Facebook, which is sort of context-free, compared to offline, where all interactions take place in any given context?
which interesting results did you achieve? Well, one, th one recent result that I've uh, come across through uh, a study of uh, Facebook users, and uh, this is uh, very hot off the press, so it's not uh, in published form yet, and perhaps another half a year or so, is that personal network members are generally the people who link together different groups on Facebook. So Facebook is more of an environment where individuals have a lot of different, uh, different people from different spheres of life. And when you look at the network structure, as in who links to who, from the perspective of any person, that structure looks like a series of uh, densely connected pockets of people, say a lot of my friends from high school, and densely connected pockets of people like my workmates. And it turns out the people that I am close to look like people who connect those dense pockets. So the people who know both my workmates and my friends from Toronto, or people who know both my high school friends and my friends from undergraduate. And those people that link together across those different dense groups are the ones that we seem to think is close. Other results that have been uh, interesting in the field, uh, more broadly on Facebook, uh, have shown that Facebook users seem to be more successful at uh, embedding themselves in offline social events. They seem to be able to leverage what we call social capital. And social capital are the resources that are embedded in a person's uh, network. So if you have uh, friends that can offer you a job or even just a, uh, an interesting concert or a place to go in the evening or resources such as you need a babysitter, they can find a babysitter or someone to take care of your pets. These sorts of things are social capital. Facebook users versus non-users seem to be better able to harness the social capital of their network. And part of that is because they can see their social capital more effectively because they can see who is in their network very easily through Facebook. And secondly, because they have better access to these individuals. As Facebook is not simply a medium like email or instant messenger, but a sort of meta-medium because it involves wall-to-wall -wall posts, as well as uh, chat groups and events, and all sorts of things that leverage a specific network that you've said, these are the people that are important to me, and so now how can I make use of them? Why do you think that Facebook is so successful? And on the other hand, why do you think that so many people are somehow disappointed by Facebook and wish to quit it? There is this famous quitfacebook.com. One of the reasons why Facebook is so successful is uh, luck. You know, I don't want to talk down Facebook and its successes, but we have to keep in mind that Facebook, while it's the most popular social software site in uh, Britain, as well as Canada, it's number two in the United States compared to MySpace. And all across the world, there are different social networking sites that become the most popular. Uh, so, for example, in Brazil and India, Orkut, which is Google's uh, social networking uh, site, is uh, far and away the most popular site. These things happen through what's called a network effect, which is that the value of certain kinds of goods or certain kinds of technologies increase the more people that are using them. So you can think of uh, DVDs, for example. If only a few people have DVD players, then DVDs are very expensive and nobody wants to uh, buy a DVD. But as more people buy DVD players, the price of DVDs and DVD players gets cheaper, it becomes easier to find them. And so then there's this network effect where every individual who uses it increases the utility for everyone. And we're seeing that again with uh, Blu-ray players, you know, which are replacing DVDs, and they're having a hard time getting off the ground because there's not enough people uh, purchasing them 
to participate in that network effect. Well, that happens in social software, where you have early movers who start to become attracted to a specific social networking site and then attract more people. So that means it's sort of like a rich-get-richer phenomenon, where Facebook in Britain became very attractive relative to MySpace and relative to Orkut, and so it just outran the, uh, the competition, if you will. And as we can see, that that networking effect seems to be very bounded by, uh, by nationality and often by language, where if all the people that speak Spanish are primarily on one network and all the people that uh, speak Hindi are primarily on one network, people will gravitate to that network. So I would say history and the network effect. One of the reasons that uh, people have given for Facebook in particular for their success is because of its historical grounding in being a site for linking people on colleges. College students and high school students are generally early adopters of technology. They're ahead of the curve, partially because the way that they interact with other people, the way that they maintain the relationships is not settled. It's a time for uh, experimentation and play, so they can add these new technologies to their repertoires for interacting with other people. So Facebook leveraged this being a college-only site, and that also made it very exclusive, so people wanted to get on it. So places where uh, a lot of the social networking technology was related to a lot of those individuals who were at universities, that helped give Facebook a, uh, a leg up. Why are some people disappointed? There's an interesting hypothesis uh, actually promoted primarily by a uh, professor here at Oxford, uh, Professor Robin Dunbar, which is the social brain hypothesis, and it suggests that we have a certain physical capacity in our mind for understanding networks of a certain size. As in, people can uh, remember very easily the names, faces, and details of up to about 100 and 150 individuals. And once it gets uh, above that, and so up to about 300, we're no longer remembering them as individuals, but just as roles, or say, the postman rather than Joe. What this is saying more broadly is that we have a limit to how much cognitive load we can handle in terms of the people that we relate to. Why is this important for Facebook? Some people on Facebook seem to be collecting friends, and they collect 200, 300, 400 friends. And what is this going to mean to their ability to network on Facebook? Well, they no longer have a really good sense of how to handle these many individuals in their network, and what do you say to these people? Do you wish them all happy birthday? Do you keep up with all of them? And it becomes uh, too much of a cognitive load. So a lot of people, what they end up doing is flushing their Facebook account, which is to say they delete it, get rid of all their ties, start anew, and then when they start anew, they just pick up the friends that were really close, the ones from everyday life, and then, and then leave the rest behind. So that disappointment comes from perhaps the fact that it's really easy to collect a lot of friends on Facebook, but really hard for people to maintain relationships to that many individuals in particular. So what about the problem of leaving Facebook? I read that it's difficult to delete an account for good. That's more of a technical issue, actually, than a uh, political one. It's my understanding that it's actually very difficult to clean out a lot of the different databases in which your data is stored. Facebook is not merely a uh, uh, sort of a file system uh, so much as a, a series of uh, many, many, many linked databases. And as you get rid of uh, 
that data. You, you're getting rid of not just my data, but my relationships to other people, and that's stored in one database, or my notes to people, which is stored in another database, and, and so forth. And that's a challenge. Can they overcome that challenge? Oh, most definitely. Uh, most definitely they can, but I think they would rather not because of a concern that people are um, might want their account back or might want this information again or that this information will be useful to people. And they're within their right. Some people are quite surprised by that, but they're within their right because these are Facebook properties. This is information that you give to Facebook and they consider it as theirs. Politically, whether that's appropriate, well, that would be something that Facebook will have to sort out with its users. But overall, I can't assume too much about the decisions that are happening inside Facebook about this data because I don't have that inside information. Okay. What are the offline effects of Facebook, you think? There are positive and negative effects for Facebook offline, uh, and they come through the acts that people do online that spill over into the offline life. Uh, so some of the uh, positive effects are the fact that Facebook uh, and social software broadly can allow individuals to mobilize other people, so inviting them to uh, certain events, making people aware that things are happening, and overall contributing to public life through this level of constant, what they call micro-coordination, constantly reorganizing your events as things are happening. So it makes people better aware of what they can do and how they can participate in civic life with other people. That's a one benefit. A more broad and perhaps abstract benefit of Facebook is that people can now see that their friends are friends with other people. This leads to a vague sense of social cohesion, that we're all in this together. When you see that uh, while I and you may not be friends, we may have a friend in common. Or if we look hard enough on Facebook, we might find a friend of a friend and then get a sense that, yes, we're all part of this one big network. So people via Facebook are no longer simply strangers, they're just people that have not been explicitly friended but can be found through other friends. And that's sort of a, a manifestation of what we call the, uh, the small world. The idea that we're all connected by uh, very short path lengths. So from me to you to you to you, etc. And the, the number of paths connecting any two individuals is actually quite short. Abstractly, we can kind of get that and go, oh, isn't that neat? It's six degrees of separation. But we can't really get a sense of that, except through these social software sites, which can show us that, no, no, not only is this true, but I can show you how this is true. The path is through this person to this person to this person. And that's, uh, that's quite exciting. So yes, you have that sense of overall social cohesion and we're in it together, as well as a sense of individuals being able to uh, mobilize their ties through Facebook by having all of these people to uh, look to. Some of the offline negative effects of Facebook concern exclusion. That is, if all of these events are taking place through Facebook, then what about those people who aren't participating on Facebook because of privacy concerns or because they uh, don't have access to the technology or simply out of taste, they don't feel that this is an appealing way to relate to other people, then they become excluded from the events that are taking place online and that are taking place on Facebook uh, specifically. Now, I'm not just referring to, say, a cranky friend of yours who says, oh, I don't like Facebook, but also people in one's family that are not on Facebook, or individuals who we know are less likely to participate in online culture, such as the elderly. Now, if all the family photos are being shared on Facebook, rather than being shared through the post, then 
some people are missing out on those family photos when they wouldn't have been missing out earlier. So that level of exclusion is a concern. Another offline concern for Facebook is what happens when individuals have to mix boundaries. So it's very common for uh, me and other researchers and professors to talk about the challenges of having a student try to friend you on Facebook. They're often doing it innocently enough as just a gesture to say, hey, I know this person, he's a professor, and I can relate to him, or he's my tutor and I can relate to him. But from the professor's point of view, that means that these individuals are encroaching on their, uh, their private space and their personal life. And so it's very easy to say no, but then you want to say no, don't be my friend on Facebook, in such a way that it makes these people feel uh, like they're saving face or feeling comfortable, and that I'm not trying to undermine or deny this goodwill gesture, I'm just saying it's not appropriate. So these, these mismatches, these boundaries that need to be managed offline are not as easily managed online and through Facebook, so this would be one uh, negative outcome. What do you think about all these activities one can engage with on Facebook and the problem of the waste of time? I think that we have to, we have to think about what we mean when we say it's a waste of time. Without being completely relativist and saying that every activity is just as good as any other activity, we still have to meet people on their own terms. And to the extent that people are doing these things because they want to rather than because they're told to, we have to accept that that is their choice. And if they're you know, wasting time on Facebook as opposed to not doing other activities, it's also the case that they're wanting to be on Facebook. More importantly, there is a common myth, especially among individuals who are not active participants in online culture, that the online world is somehow separate from the offline world, that you're either being social or you're going to be on the internet. But the internet is a social space, and nowhere is that more obvious than in Facebook, which is itself a social networking platform, or as Facebook calls it, a social utility. So that they're on these sites, say, playing uh, some Scrabble or Scrabulous game, or whether they're sending pictures to others or commenting on other sites, they are participating in culture and they are being social, and that's an appropriate uh, and certainly very fair thing for them to do. Now, there's always going to be individuals on the extreme ends who spend what most would consider to be too much time at this activity. Those people exist for every activity, whether we're referring to uh, you know, playing sports, collecting comics, listening to music, or more um, value-loaded activities such as uh, drinking. There's always a case that these people, there will be some on the fringes that do it too much for their own good. I'm shying away from calling it an addiction because an addiction has a physical characteristic to it and physical symptoms of withdrawal. However, there is, there is reason to suggest that there can be a compulsion and a need to uh, check one's Facebook page or a need to be there. And yeah, it's fair to say that there is, a, there is a line or at least a fuzzy boundary and over that line it's unhealthy. But I'm not willing to say what that line is for every person in every context because it will certainly vary. How important is Facebook and online relationships in general for the social survival of individuals? Like, for example, when, when you said before that everybody now has a profile on Facebook, this reminded me to what happened years ago with the mobile phones. Mm -hmm. 
First, nobody had mobile phones, and then it created a problem of exclusion that the people who didn't have a mobile phone were cut outside of the connections. Will this happen, or did it already happen with Facebook? I mean, how important will be or is mm. already the online engagement for one's social survival? You know? I think it's overblown. And the reason I think it's uh, overblown is because Facebook is not the most important means for maintaining offline contact. Mobile phone is still more important. Uh, for many people, email is very important. MSN is very important. We're embedded in a very large and robust web of communications to sustain ourselves in everyday life. Facebook is one part of this and one that some people think is very important. Most people think is somewhat important and few people think is not important at all. That's different from saying that it's absolutely crucial. It's very useful and very exciting and uh, certainly very novel, but I don't think it's uh, the most important. And one of the reasons I suspect that is because of this trend towards new social software sites in a population. So for example, uh, four years ago the site Friendster was very popular and then there was a, it was a big rush to get on Friendster and then people moved from Friendster towards MySpace and towards Facebook and there might be another site that comes up uh, or other niche sites that are happening right now that are just as important for specific individuals in specific contexts. Nevertheless, there are still concerns that people are, um, are missing out because they're not on Facebook. But again, I, I think those are overblown. And one of the reasons that they're overblown is because it, you don't need everybody to have access to a specific medium in order for everybody to engage in a social activity. Why? Because people have friends who can keep them informed. So as long as enough people are on these sites and interacting with each other and maintaining their connections and then telling their friends who they know offline, then that's perfectly uh, sufficient. So for example, not everyone needs to plan the party. Only a few people need to plan the party and then invite their friends. And not every friend needs to get the invitation directly. They can be invited through friends or friends of friends. So to the extent that enough people are connecting to other offline people, and to the extent that Facebook is not seen as a gatekeeper, but merely a uh, facilitator of offline interaction, then it's, it's not, you know, essential. Because it's just facilitating things. It's just helping to make things happen. But if it's not a gatekeeper, it's not like, oh, you're not on Facebook, you're not invited to the party. It's only, oh, you're not on Facebook, you're going to have to get the invitation from a friend, which is much more robust and much more resilient to changes in media. But now you were talking specifically about Facebook, right? But you agree that the virtual world is very important. Mm -hmm. Sending emails, MSN, as you suggested. Well, there, there are so many different opportunities for people to engage each other online now that it's hard to say there's any one that's specifically important. Are people cut off from culture generally if they're not online at all? Well, they're certainly cut off from some culture. And some of those individuals might feel cut off. But I say a lot of other of those individuals couldn't be bothered. They, they still read the newspaper. They can still, you know, send posts or even call on the telephone. And they seem to be getting along uh, just fine. But competing with Facebook is a host of other technologies, not least of which is uh, MySpace and 
High Five and LinkedIn, but also technologies such as Twitter, which allow for these short message updates between lots of different people. So there's many routes to keeping informed with others. In fact, if anything, there's too many. And the problem is not accessibility, but differential accessibility. The fact that some people are more adept at keeping their Facebook profile up to date, while others are more uh, likely to be responding to you on MSN and others on email. And so it's not any given uh, media that's the problem, but the complexity of knowing which media is the right media for which person. Okay, uh, which are the methods of research in this field? How do you work <clears throat> exactly? Mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's three main methods, and I sort of work in between uh, the two extremes uh, in that middle method in the third. The first one is survey research. Get a bunch of people, is there a survey sampling frame, either uh, college students or a population, ask them how often they use a technology, um, how and how often they do other things offline. So for example, uh, Ellison and uh, colleagues at Michigan would be using survey research with their college students, and uh, Hargadi and colleagues at uh, Northwestern University in the U.S. would also be using uh, similar survey techniques. Now, right on the other extreme is a, sort of a, a no-contact kind of research, and that's where you don't actually interview people, you don't survey them, but you just get passive traces of their interaction online. So that's where you can look at someone's Facebook page and then make a record of all of the uh, friends that they have on that page. And then for all those individuals, make a record of all of their friends. And so then you build a social network from these traces, from this data. And you're not actually interviewing anybody because you can just capture the data from Facebook's database. Now Facebook has a lot of privacy regulations in particular that make it so that this is very hard to do without Facebook's permission or without the permission of the users. Other sites are a little more uh, liberal in this regard. So for example a site called uh, dig.com, in addition to being a site about filtering news, has friends and then you can become friends of someone and all of this information is freely accessible to researchers through a Creative Commons license. And so you can use a computer script that will run through all of the uh, different friends and then build the network for you. Now I work in between those two in sort of the third place which is uh, social network methods where we generally go out and interview people or survey them but we also capture the social network itself. And so that network can either be captured by interviewing and saying, who are your friends? Or who are the people you feel close to? And then you name them and you say, okay, so now is this person close to this one? Is this person close to the second one? Is this person close to the third one? The method is pretty tedious, but uh, it does work and it does give you a picture of uh, relationships. And the more recent methods that I've been working with are combining these survey and interview methods with the automated data collection through Facebook. So I'll interview you, but instead of just asking who your friends are, I'll say, now let's go to uh, a Facebook application I've created, and I will download your friends and we'll have a look at that image and see and tell me what you think about that. And that's based on a lot of uh, earlier work in this vein by uh, Daniel Fisher and Dana Boyd, both of whom did uh, theses in this area of automatically capturing social networks and then getting people to discuss it and uh, and talk about it as a as a real object. Can you see parallels between the environment of Facebook and the environment outside offline? Mm -hmm. The way people can be creative, the way people can express themselves and 
create their own strong identity, adding memberships to groups, photos. Not as many parallels as one might think, actually. Some of the parallels involve differential levels of activity or um, participation. There always seems to be some individuals who raise their hand in class and they love to hear the sound of their own voice or some people who always feel like they uh, want to be ahead of the curve or know what the new music is that's really interesting or they're always checking the sports scores and doing that so that they can tell their friends, oh, I'm keeping up with this, uh, oh, just see the game last night and so forth. And so there's, you still have that on, uh, online and perhaps even to a more extreme extent where some individuals and they're not necessarily the ones you're closest to, have wildly different expectations of how much participation is enough. And some people are constantly posting content, remixing a video or a song, constantly posting new updates. Oh, I went to this place for lunch. Here's a photograph of my nice sandwich or something. And other people who would use Facebook more intermittently, much like there are some people who go, well, I just keep up with whatever music is... uh, you know, more or less interesting, or I hear about it from my friends, or some people are constantly chasing the the new music. So that's in personal taste and uh, personal biases towards uh, levels of participation. However, a lot of the um, differences, rather than the parallels, come from the fact that Facebook, unlike uh, offline life, is uh, digital, it's mediated, and persistent. It's mediated, which means I have, there's something between me and everyone else, and that something is Facebook. So because it's mediated, that means I have to find a way to encode what I'm doing to put on Facebook. I don't just talk to Facebook. I, I type in Facebook. And if I did talk, they might say in the future, then they'll just transcribe it so it'll become text. Well, what happens once you encode something uh, and once it's digitized is that you can make a copy of it for free. Why is this important? Because then you can keep a copy of it for free. So uh, an entire record of uh, your interactions, of your history, of all the content you posted, all the notes that you sent, all the wall posts that you made, it's all persistent there. And that's not persistent in everyday life. In fact, in offline uh, life, a lot of what we do is nostalgia and then say, oh, do you remember the time we did this? And people have sort of fuzzy memories that through talking with other people, they reinforce with each other. That's what we call transactive memory. And we don't have that same sense of once, as soon as you meet somebody or associate with somebody that you knew beforehand, they say, oh, and so, yeah, remember we met on, uh, you know, January 23rd at uh, 5 p.m., and then we met again at uh, February 15th at 3 p.m., and, you know, October 30th at 12 p.m., whereas if you go to somebody's page on Facebook, it will give you a listing of all the different times that you, you messaged them. So that level of persistence really makes a difference into how we treat our relationships, our ability to reflect on our relationships, and the sort of things that we think are important when engaging with each other. And perhaps online uh, nostalgia is not as important as novelty. One thing I'm interested in is, according to your results, Mm -hmm. how useful is uh, Facebook for networking? uh, Which results one can achieve, let's say, if one is looking for a job? How useful is Facebook for these very practical purposes? While I haven't studied jobs on Facebook uh, specifically, I can tell you that there is a pretty strong hypothesis within my field suggesting that jobs, 
among uh, other things that people search for through their friends, a really benefit from knowing lots of people from lots of diverse contexts. And that's because the people that you're really close to generally all know each other. So they generally all have access to the same information. But the people that you're less close to have access to slightly different information or access to other groups of people who all have similar information. So that's what's called the strength of weak ties or the strength of weak ties hypothesis from Mark Granovetter. And he was looking at that in um, everyday life job searches oh, back in the 70s. And since then it's been reinforced by a number of studies and there are sort of caveats for some cultures. So in some cultures, particularly in, uh, uh, in China, where Guangxi is very important, it is important to get jobs through your, um, through your strong ties. But in Western culture, it's often done through your weak ties. And people say, oh, I thought about this job, and you might be interested in it. Well, to the extent that Facebook gives us access to these weak ties, this ready-made list of people that we're sort of close to, it would be a fantastic site for helping individuals in times of need because there's so many people out there that you can broadcast to and, and get access to their information and get access to those different pockets of information that you might not have accessed otherwise. Now is Facebook better than other technologies online that allow us to access many people? So for example, is Facebook better than email or is Facebook better than instant messenger in this regard? Probably. And the reason it's probably better is because you get to broadcast to so many people and this list of people you get to broadcast persists. Yes, people have an address book on email, but they rarely send something to everyone in their address book. Yet, when you have a status update on Facebook, you can broadcast that to everyone who you know on Facebook. And that level of broadcasting and just pushing that information out there and having a ready-made list should make a big difference. And there's a number of studies underway right now that are exploring this, but you know this is uh, still a very new and very hot field. So I look forward to the results and look forward to seeing if what we think is the case, weak ties lead to more resources online, is really the case. The other aspect of this easy access uh, on informations of the others, this possibility to uh, discover details about the other's life. <laughs> That's going to be a concern, certainly, and an increased concern in the future. Right now we have... Uh, oh, actually, it's funny. I'll tell you, the reason that I joined Facebook, and this was about a year and a half ago, was for this very issue. And that was, uh, someone mentioned that uh, there was a, a, you know, a funny picture of me uh, from Halloween or something uh, on Facebook, and I was like, really? And how did they know it was a funny picture of me? And that's because Facebook allows you to tag photos. So you, not only do you put a photo up, but you get to put a photo up and ascribe an identity to the people that are in these photos. So I joined so I could see and help uh, police and self-regulate or you know, regulate other people's uh, impressions of me on Facebook because I needed to keep a, uh, a reasonable or respectable uh, public uh, impression. So this is going to be an issue and it's going to be an increased issue. And how we resolve this might be simply more liberty, just more tolerance for people and more accepting that, you know, people have times when they're going to be uh, silly or going to be stupid, um, and that's going to happen. But it might become a matter where different norms emerge. So part of the anxiety here 
is the sense that Facebook is a free-for-all, people are going to put up whatever pictures they want, and they're not going to have much care or much sense, um, when that's not really true. After having been on these sites for some time, most individuals learn what is appropriate and what is inappropriate for that space. So it's not that Facebook as a technology is going to unleash a whole can of worms that wasn't around before, it's more that we have growing pains as we learn what is appropriate public and private behavior on Facebook just as we learn what's appropriate and public and private behavior on any other medium. In a very uh, sort of theoretical context, uh, this can relate to uh, a pretty classic idea by Jeremy Bentham that was picked up by Michel Foucault. It's the idea of the panopticon. And this is the idea uh, well, Jeremy Bentham designed a prison where there was this uh, sort of um, spire in the middle that somebody would look out from, or a cylinder in the middle that someone would look out from, and that they uh, and the prisoners would be all around this cylinder, and they couldn't see who was uh, looking at them or whether or not the uh, warden was looking in their particular cell. So what that meant is that the prisoners would behave themselves because they weren't sure who was looking at them when. And now Michel Foucault sort of generalized this idea by saying that uh, technologies that create an uncertainty between who is doing the watching and who is being the watched ends up reinforcing a sense that people start to self-police. So this is discipline, discipline in the sense of self-disciplining. So I will be careful when I'm in a, uh, in a store not to shoplift, not because there's a camera watching, but because there might be someone on the other side of that camera watching, and I can't tell whether or not there's a camera watching or not, or whether or not someone's paying attention. And so now that leads to these, uh, these plastic domes in large supermarkets and uh, uh, stores, and some of those domes don't even have cameras in them, but people don't know, so they behave as if there's a camera in them. And similarly, online, this level of uncertainty will generally lead to self-policing, where people are unsure of who is looking at them and when people are looking at them, so they will tend to discipline themselves online and try to create a, uh, an impression of themselves that is uh, ideal or appropriate or uh, personable. Now, the problem comes when people are worried about what their friends are going to post about them and a mismatch between what they think is an appropriate level of self-policing and what somebody else might think is an appropriate level of self-policing. So, for example, I might be very casual and say, oh, I don't really care if you put pictures of me up when I'm at a party or see me drinking or, or something, and it doesn't really bother me. Whereas somebody else might be like, I might want to be Prime Minister someday, and so I want to make sure that every single instance of what I do online should be absolutely appropriate. But that's sort of an unrealistic expectation. We need to be a little more tolerant and understand that people are people, uh, that some people do silly things. I'm sure even the, uh, the current President of the United States, uh, Barack Obama, overcame a lot of uh, these concerns in an interesting way. He wrote a book where Basically, he told about everything that he did in his entire life, including earlier relationships, uh, experimenting with drug use in college, um, problems with uh, various uh, racist elements in society, the fact that he did interact with Muslims in Indonesia when this was considered not to be a good, uh, you know, a good thing to be associated with Muslims if you're running for the president. 
So Obama there decided to take it all head on by saying, this is what I've done, this is who I am, and, you know, deal with it. So he then took control of a lot of this information. And similarly online, I think people will want to take control of their own information and say, this is me, this is me online, and harmonize what they think they should be doing with what they are doing. And then, if other people are curious about what's happening, then it's not a problem. What do you expect from these uh, research on Facebook and on online relationships? I mean, what are your purposes exactly? Sociology in general is interested in the mechanisms that lead to and promote inequality or equality and uh, oppression or freedom. So we would ask, does Facebook create new inequalities? Do they resolve old inequalities? Do they lead to people being surveyed and put under greater control? Or do they allow people more freedom than they, they had before? Me, as a sociologist, I would be interested in those issues. Is Facebook a leveling force where, you know, say I'm right now two degrees from a member of parliament. I'm friends with someone who's friends with a member of parliament. And, you know, now I can see that relation in a way that I wasn't uh, able to see before. And so that feels like a, a great leveling force. But then there's also the concern about me being more constrained on Facebook and trying to spend all my time behaving or behaving in a way that uh, is overly uh, disciplined or overly careful. And, and that might lead to new inequalities where some people feel that Facebook is too, too self-policed and too, too disciplined and they get bored with the site. Of course, there's also, again, what I mentioned earlier, the issues of exclusion. For me in particular, uh, the issue with Facebook and what I am trying to understand is how we can better embed context into online relationships for two reasons. First is that so that people can most fully express themselves like they do in any given context when they're online without trying to behave according to the lowest common denominator. And that will help uh, take, the, uh, take the stress off, and so then the stress might be of... Uh, I'm a, uh, a professor and a student in one context, and I'm hanging out with my friends in another context. And so that's why, you know, as I said, professors would be reluctant to friend uh, students in Facebook because they're concerned about mixing these two contexts. So how can we create those contexts so that it's okay to friend your students on Facebook without feeling like they're encroaching on your personal space? And so you get both the benefits of social software and sort of undermine the drawbacks. And that's a challenge, and that involves a lot of uh, theorizing and understand how people understand context in everyday life, and what of those understandings are needed to be built into a social software platform. The second thing that I'm interested in is how we can better design these spaces to deal with information overload. And this was that issue earlier about people being disappointed about Facebook or wanting to get off Facebook because there's either just have too many friends or they find that there's too much going on, there's too much media, I'm learning too much about people, and how can we reduce that cognitive burden? You know, it's funny, we used to be worried about uh, social isolation. Are communities fraying? Are they fragmenting? Is everybody becoming more alone and alienated? And in the past 10 years, we've seen a complete reversal. It's quite the opposite now, where what we're worried about is having too much information, either giving out too much information or reading too much information about other people. And so what we really need is somehow to hit that middle ground where we're not worried about sort of the modern city creating us as all strangers, 
or modern technology creating us all in one big, loud, noisy global village, but somehow that people can effectively manage their day-to-day uh, -day interactions uh, in an easy and fluid way through these technologies and still with a level of comfort that they would like in everyday life. One thing that I think is very important to keep in mind is that online technology do not substitute for offline interaction. This is not a virtual world. This is not somewhere else out there. These are not mysterious relationships. That the online world is simply social relationships as they were before. When we stop thinking about technology as an end in itself, but thinking of technology as a means to an end, and that end is human relationships, then I think we can more effectively analyze how different technologies play into our everyday lives. Uh, and I'll give you one example. People assume that face-to-face uh, -face interaction is a gold standard, that that's the, the ideal form of interaction. But now, this is a face-to-face -face interview taking place in a quiet room, you know, and there's a, an interviewer and an interviewee. But now, let's say we take this uh, recorder and uh, then we go to, uh, you know, to a loud bar, and the music is blasting, and then we'd have to get very close to each other and yell at the, uh, at the tape recorder, and it's very complicated, and it's not very good. You can see that, yes, it's still two people talking face-to-face, -face, but yet, the technology of amplification of sound has made an incredible difference to how that conversation is going to unfold. And yet, we still thought it was face-to-face, -face, but there was, in fact, a technology that helped support that interaction. And in that case, it would be a stereo. Marshall McLuhan, a famous uh, Canadian scholar of media, also, much like myself, former attendee of University of Toronto, had said that if you can understand how the light bulb is a medium, you can understand how any medium is a medium. And what he meant there is that, we, well, we think that mediums are what we use to push data across, and so I use email as a medium, I, I send something through email. But the light here allows individuals to have interactions at the nighttime. It can facilitate conversations and can facilitate interactions when they couldn't otherwise be facilitated. Email, similarly, is not just a technology, but a medium that facilitates interaction across different timescales and facilitates interaction where people can broadcast one message to many people. Facebook is not just a technology, but a means for collecting and organizing one's social relationships with other people. And so instead of seeing it as a technology, but as a means to an end, then we can see how it works as a means to an end and get away from the idea of virtual communities and abstract uh, individuals out there and start thinking about how they shape our interactions with people in here.